Amen. Amen, and God bless you, and good to see you. We're in Colossians again this morning, chapter 1. Plan is to get out of chapter 1 at some point today, so you can be in prayer for that. <laughs> Colossians 1, the book of Colossians is a small book, but it's a book that tells the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. It's true. <laughs> Pontius Pilate would say, you may recall that day, Pontius Pilate said, what is truth, right? And previously, the Lord Jesus had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. And last time, where we ended, in verse 23 of chapter 1, we were exhorted to continue in the faith. That is, just believe in Jesus. Be caught up in him, focus on him, falling in love with him. That's the whole deal right there. And why not, when you consider the very truth that we saw there in chapter 1 as it relates to the Lord Jesus. We talked about the supremacy of Jesus Christ over creation. Verse 16, last time, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, and him, in him all things consist. And verse 18, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So the supremacy of Christ in creation the sufficiency of Christ in redemption. Verse 19 said, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And then verse 20, And by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So everything is made through him. It's all made for him. It's all held together by him. And the fullness of God dwells in him. He's able to reconcile all things to himself and so then, as a result, all things ought to be focused on him. In other words, and here's the thing, ready? Here it is. This is the deep truth for this morning. It's all about Jesus. That's the truth. It's simple that way, right? It's all about Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. It's not a philosophy of life, per se. It's not some moral code. It's not even really predominantly a religion. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the truth. That's easy to remember, right? That it's all about Jesus Christ. And yet, we know that down throughout the centuries, very, very clever deceivers have come along and been able to lure some away from that very, very simple truth. And despite the really good things that had been happening in this church that we're studying here, this church in Colossae, remember Epaphras, a man who probably planted the church, he goes to Paul at the beginning of chapter one, Paul talks about that conversation that they had, and he talked about the church in Colossae, that they were known for faith and for love and for hope. He said they had received the truth of the gospel and it was bringing forth fruit. But despite all those good things, there are these false teachers that are attempting to hijack what it was that the Holy Spirit had begun. And so what we have is we have this church that was very healthy, good things are happening. We could say even dynamic things were happening in and through the work of the Spirit and the love that was abounding in this church body, and now come along these false teachers. And what we see here in a lot of ways by studying the book of Colossians, because the church in Colossae was a very small church, so we would have no reason to think that the Holy Spirit would otherwise include a letter written by Paul to such a small church, or why would Paul even write the letter, seeing that he had never been there, we don't think, didn't know most of those people, except that what's happening is false teaching. This is sort of the origination of the concern that the Holy Spirit would have about how false teaching down throughout the years would come. And that's exactly what happens here after the fact. <clears throat> after God has made this movement in this church, people are saved, they're growing in Christ, then come these Gnostic teachers, and they come in to capitalize on the Lord Jesus, on the work that had already been done in order to draw people to themselves after the fact. They're kind of like the folks, you know, you do a building project or you remodel the fellowship hall, 
something like we did you know, a little while back, and people are there for weeks, and they're doing all this work, they're laboring, and they build the drywall, and they lay the carpet, and the walls are dry from the paint, and then they're the ones that come in at the last minute and turn on the light switch. Like, we don't know how to do that. And then they want to stay for the pizza. And that's exactly what the Gnostics were, in essence, doing by capitalizing on a foundation that was laid upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Now, worse than all that is they confuse everything by blurring, by confusing, by distracting the simple message of the gospel that it's all about Jesus Christ. Not just our salvation, but our sanctification is all about Jesus Christ. And they come along with their depth, supposedly. Quote, unquote, their depth. And this is no different today. This is just the beginning of these things because people are doing these things today. Oh, you're a Christian? Okay, that's great. So you've received Jesus Christ? That's wonderful. Now what we can do is kind of help you go to this next level in your walk. We can kind of teach you the deep things, the hidden truths, the things that they won't teach you in most of those churches. That was kind of the basic message. Forget about Gnostic theology per se. This is the origination of deeper life club mentality where somehow we're led to believe somewhere along the way that it's not just about Jesus, but it's about some of these other kinds of things. And the Gnostics, they had these buzzwords like fullness. They love to talk about understanding. They love to talk about hidden truths, secret things, secret wisdom, those kinds of things. And it's really, it may not be as overt today but it's packaged similarly where someone will try to get you to buy into a certain kind of teaching that's not consistent with God's word at all in order to appeal to some sort of depth or some aspect of your life that isn't being currently satisfied the way you want it to be. And so you're taught in a very, very different way and it's very contrary to what God's word is or at least the very emphasis of God's word. And so in all of these things, Instead of the Apostle Paul going to each individual situation and addressing each one, addressing each argument, he begins in this book of Colossians by talking about Jesus the whole way. Instead of arguing or refuting the arguments of the Gnostics, he talks about the Lord Jesus. And so, as we said, he began by last time the supremacy of Christ over creation the sufficiency of Christ in redemption. Today, we're gonna to see the simplicity of Christ in sanctification or in our maturation process as we're drawn closer into our relationship with God. It's simple, it's in Christ. In the same way, listen to this, in the same way that you came to Christ in faith is the same way you're to continue to grow in your relationship with God is by relying on a simple faith in Jesus Christ. And not all of these other things, not all of these distractions, not all the supposed death depth that some people would lead you to believe. So that's kind of the point this morning. It's actually a very simple concept of a return to simplicity that is needed in the life of the believer. Let's take a look. <clears throat> Verse 24, he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, the sufferings that Paul had experienced in doing what he did, bringing the gospel to them and others. He said, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, what is Paul talking about there when he says in verse 24, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Is there anything lacking in the, in the afflictions of Christ as it relates to our salvation or to Jesus paying the price for you and me to be able to go to heaven? No, nothing at all. Hebrews chapter 10, this is an interesting little passage, verses 11 through 14. It reads this way, and every priest stands, talking about the Old Testament priests and the sacrificial system, ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, capital M for Jesus, right? After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So there's nothing lacking in Jesus' sacrifice for our sins at all. 
Paul is not saying, well, Jesus didn't suffer enough, and so I need to suffer to kind of fill in the gaps for where he left off. That's not what he's saying. The word there, I know I'm getting technical, but it's important that we understand. The word there for afflictions in verse 24 is never used in the New Testament to describe the sufferings of Jesus upon the cross. Rather, it seems to be a reference to the way in which Jesus suffered in his ministry. And then what Paul says makes sense, that in our ministry and in our service, we will suffer similarly because we love God, because we're of Jesus Christ. Remember in Acts chapter 9, before the Apostle Paul was the Apostle Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. He has that encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And when Jesus confronts him, what does Jesus say to him? You remember? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me, right? Saul had been persecuting the church He had been rounding up Christians to throw them in prison. He had been consenting to the death of Christians. But Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? Why? Because when somebody persecutes Christians, they persecute Jesus Christ. The sufferings that we incur because we love him, the persecution that we go through because we desire to serve him, the treatment that the world would dish out on Jesus If he were here in a physical body, he is here in the body of Christ, but he is not in a physical body, so we receive that treatment, the sufferings, the afflictions that he would receive. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. And so that's why it's translated the way it is. He could honestly say, I rejoice that I get to suffer in some of the ways that Jesus would suffer if he were here instead, but we're representing him. And what a blessing it is to be persecuted for Christ. In fact, in the book of Acts, they used to count it a privilege and a blessing to be persecuted for Jesus Christ. Now, if that's the case for you and for me today, if we're actually persecuted because we are doing what Christ would have us do, then you can rejoice in that. I don't rejoice because I'm bothering somebody because I'm mean or rude or disrespectful. But if I am truly being persecuted because I'm sold out for my faith, then we can celebrate that. We can rejoice in that. Paul being able to suffer for the sake of the body, which is the church, verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you. You being the people in Colossae, which were mostly Gentiles. And that was predominantly Paul's Paul, right, was to the Gentiles, to, there, middle of verse 25, fulfill the word of God, verse 26, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Now notice with me there, two times you're going to see that word mystery there in verse 26, and in verse 27. Now that would be one of those buzzwords for the Gnostics, but that's not what mystery means in a biblical sense. In a biblical sense, the word mystery is not something eerie or spooky or anything like that. It's not a riddle. It's something that was previously concealed, like in Old Testament times, but now has been revealed in this new covenant, in the person of Jesus Christ, revealed as it says there, to his saints. Well, what is that mystery? It's not a mystery to you and I. We already know about it, but we have to, for our purposes this morning, have to put ourselves in the mindset in order to fully appreciate this, as if you're hearing this for the very first time. Because this is the greatest mystery, as long as I'm alive and living the spirit-filled life, is the greatest mystery I can possibly think of, which is there, end of verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, in the Old Testament, the fact that God would have a love for Gentiles, or that he would have an interest in Gentiles, that was no mystery. The prophets had made that known. But this mystery that Paul speaks of here, two parts, I think. First, and this was revealed in Jesus Christ, was that God loved the Gentiles every bit as much as he loved the Jews, and that the Jews needed salvation 
every bit as much as the Gentiles did. And God has provided a means of salvation in the very same way for both Jew and Gentile alike, all through faith in Christ, and he brings them together through the blood of Jesus into one family. And again, this is the body of Christ. So not only was the mystery that God would save Gentiles the same way as he would save Jews, but it's more than that. It's much more than that when you consider this concept of Christ in you. So that's why I say when we read this, sometimes we have to receive it for the first time. So you don't just go, okay, Christ in me, that's great. You go home today and you miss how wonderful this is. And you think about being one of the Old Testament saints, just mired, just steeped in the temple. I mean, it was all about the temple. And what was the temple about? The temple was all about separation. The whole structure of it spoke, it screamed of separation. You have the temple, you have the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, just one person, and that is the high priest, and just on one day of the year could enter into the Holy of Holies, and only after a sacrifice was provided for his sin. That was the only time that he could enter the Holy of Holies, which was the place that represented the very presence of God. Does that make sense? Well, it speaks of separation. It speaks of God's holiness. In other words, that he can't have sinful humanity in his presence. So it speaks of his holiness. It speaks of our sin that has separated us from God. And yet, what does God do in this new covenant because of Jesus Christ? Christ in you the hope of glory. So where you and I as Gentiles, mostly Gentiles in this room, couldn't even have gone into the court of Jewish women in that day, let alone into the court of men, let alone go as far as the priests could go or the high priest once a year, now God takes the holy place or the holy of holies, and where does he put that? He puts that in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory as God, the Holy Spirit, indwells Jew and Gentile alike, making every saint a temple, the holy of holies, indwell inside of us. Now you think about that when you consider what your sin was like before you came to Christ. Or even now, I mean, you know, no matter how far you've come, and I know a lot of you have come a long way, we've all come a long way if you've been walking with God for some time now, and God begins to change us and make us more Christ-like, you know, we try to be more like Christ, but none of us are anywhere near there. Right? We're nowhere near there. If you think you're there, or you think you're really close, we'll uh, fill up the playground with water afterwards or something and see if you can walk across. No one is even close, and yet what does he do? He puts the holy of holies, the very presence of God, into our hearts and into our lives. Now, how does he do that? How is he able to do that? Is that because the New Testament saints are just a little bit more obedient than the Old Testament saints were? Or because we're a little bit more developed or we're just a little further along, we have a little better understanding of the deep truths and those kinds of things? No, it speaks to the incredible power of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have all of this separation between God and humanity. Christ dies on the cross and now we don't even have to go into a temple. He comes into us and he lives there 24 seven. And it's a realization that we need to have, that we need to walk around in, a perfect sacrifice made by Jesus Christ that allows God to come into an otherwise filthy, dirty place that is my heart, and then dwell there all the time. He cleans it up with his presence alone. Christ in you, the hope of glory. By the way, the word hope there, we've talked about this many times, but it's important here to reiterate that that word hope is not the kind of thing we think of. It's translated hope. We think, well, I hope that I get the promotion or I hope that she says yes when I ask her to the prom or whatever the case may be. But that's not what it means there. That word hope there, that's translated hope, means a confidence, an absolute confidence of what? Of glory, an absolute confidence that heaven is in my future. So I don't just have Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit living inside of me, but I have a hope of heaven. And that's why he makes it very clear here as we close out this chapter and transition into chapter two, he says, look what it says, verse 28, him 
we preach. That's what we preach. We preach Jesus. This was Paul's philosophy, so we're gonna go ahead and adopt it as our philosophy as well. So if you've come here looking for something more in depth than Jesus Christ, first of all, there is nothing more in depth than Jesus Christ, but secondly, we won't ever do that. Him we preach, and not all of these other things that the so-called teachers taught, or so-called teachers teach today that want to take you to a different level of spiritual enlightenment that doesn't exist apart from Christ. Him we preach, warning every man. Stop there. Because there's an element of warning in preaching, isn't there? I know that's not popular today. You got a lot of people say, well, you can't do that. You can't make people feel uncomfortable. You don't want to talk about sin. You don't want to talk about separation. You most certainly don't want to talk about hell. And yet the idea is implicit in preaching Jesus, right? Because Jesus forces you to make a decision. God didn't send his son to die on the cross so that we could be completely just oblivious to it or complacent or like it didn't matter. It forces a decision. He died on the cross. He suffered. It was all part of his plan. It was predicted years and years before in God's holy word and it forces us to decide what we're going to do with him. And so it says very clearly, warning every man of the consequences, right? Of rejecting that gospel message. And he says, continuing here, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or mature, okay? That's what that means. In, and what is he gonna say there? Not Mormonism, not personal development, not Gnostic teaching, not any of these esoteric theologies or something along those lines, but we may present every man mature in Christ Jesus. It's all about him. He cannot be taught. That's what Christianity is. That's as deep as it gets, is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's what it's all about. And so Paul says, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. That's why Paul labored. That's why he said, I'm striving because I have this great concern for these folks that come along and want to take us away from the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ, both as it relates to salvation, but even as it relates to sanctification. Someone were to come along and say to you, well, that's great that you were saved by Christ, but in order to really grow in your walk with God, you need to learn these other things. Now, they may not say it, again, that blatantly today, but all you have to do is listen to what they're talking about. And if they're not talking about Jesus Christ, and if they're talking about philosophies and systems and principles of the world and tradition and all those kinds of things, then you know that they don't have the same philosophy that's taught here clearly in the scripture. Every once in a while, for like pure entertainment value, I'll flip on the channel and I'll put it on one of those church networks, TBN or the church channel or something like that. Every once in a while there's something good it's usually music, but every once in a while there's something good. But you just have to look what's going on on those channels. And you have to be careful if you're someone who watches those things. You have to be discerning of that. I actually don't mind telling you that. I don't mind warning you about the things that are taught there because they are deceptive, so much of it. The tragic thing too, in this day and age, satellite television, that kind of thing's being beamed all over the world. It's such a misrepresentation of the Lord Jesus, it's grieving. Now as Christians, you and I could sit down and watch it for a little while, poke fun at it, maybe have a good laugh, something along those lines, and then the Holy Spirit has to stop me because it's not funny. I can laugh about it because I know it's a lie, and it's so clearly a lie you don't have to be some Bible teacher, scholar. You don't have to be walking with the Lord for 25 years to know it's a lie. It's very easy to see, but it's not funny because millions upon millions are being deceived as a result of seeing these kinds of things. So you have this letter written to this small church that otherwise 
God would have no reason to include in his holy word except what began a couple thousand years ago as any form of deception they've perfected today almost in taking it to television and radio and books and all of these kinds of things. And you can't be warned enough to guard your heart against those kinds of things. And we're going to see why. I'm going to make a point in a little while. I want to get out ahead of myself. When we get into chapter two, why it's so important that we protect ourselves from these kinds of things. But the consequences are very real. It's not just like people are losing tens of thousands of dollars in some unfortunate Ponzi scheme or something like that. These are eternal stakes here that are in play, that are so very important. And Paul then, so along these lines, he transitions to chapter two. This is his big concern here. He says, for I want you to know what a great conflict, and the word conflict there can mean care or agony even. It's that deep. I have this agony I have for you, he says, and those in Laodicea. So apparently it had spread a little bit further than just Colossae. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So remember, this is why we don't think that Paul had ever been to Colossae. He did not most likely plant that church in Colossae. It's a relatively small church. It's very likely that outside of Epaphras, maybe Philemon, he doesn't really know anybody who attends this church. And yet he has this great care and concern for them. He's in agony over what he hears about what's happening to them. He knows that this false teaching has begun. He knows it is centered in this area. He knows these folks are influential and he's in agony even though he's never met them before. Even though he doesn't know them, he's never spoken there, he didn't plant the church and he's in agony about the whole thing. Now, I think that that's an important thing to remember about the Apostle Paul as it relates to us drawing from his example in Christ that the Apostle Paul, it didn't matter that he didn't plant that church. He had a care and concern for the body of Christ as a whole and not just the movement he was a part of or what he had done or how God had used him. And it can happen. I was speaking to someone this week in their small town and church that people I know go to. We're going to the leadership of the church and asking them to help with a smaller church in town because they needed help drilling for or digging for this well because they needed to get clean water and something had happened by which they didn't. And so this bigger church had these resources and they had more manpower to help out, but the leadership didn't want to because it was from a different denomination. And we hear about these things all the time and it just kind of breaks our hearts when we hear that. We ought to have the very same concern that the Apostle Paul had for the body of Christ as a whole, generally speaking, but I think even specifically here in this county. And we never ever should ever develop any kind of an attitude about what we're doing or what they're doing and compare and contrast those things. All gospel teaching count, all gospel teaching churches in this county, we ought to be praying for them. We want good things to happen there. Not just spiritually. Even from a carnal perspective, I want good things to happen there. Because if good things are happening in other churches, then that means the devil's got to spread out his resources can't just pummel one church all the time, 24-7. That would be a good thing. I want to see God glorified. I want to see people get saved. And Paul had this thing. We can learn from this. Amidst this, this uprising of false teaching, he said, hey, I have this conflict. And here was sort of his hope and sort of his prayer, I guess you could say, verse 2. He said that their hearts, that is these people that he had never met before, may be encouraged and it is never a wasted effort on your part to pray for people Christians to be encouraged that are in a situation where they're forced to make a stand for the truth because making a stand for the truth is exhausting and I'm not just talking about people like me or apologists or something like that not at all I'm actually more referring to people that are in the trenches. For instance, like some people here who are working a job where they're thrust into an environment that is incredibly ungodly and they're forced to balance, how do I make a stand for the truth and not get fired? And that's tricky. I had a young man come and meet with me after church last week and 
because of his field of study, he's working an internship, and his boss is right now having him sort of chart out the expansion of the Big Bang as it relates to the Milky Way galaxy. Well, he's a Christian man. <laughs> so he's got to do this work. It's work in an internship. It's in his field by which he wants to work for a living. It's where his career is. And here's your first project, son. Have fun with that. And that is what he has to do. And I'm trying to encourage him in the midst of that because it's a very difficult thing to be. Wherever we are and whatever God has asked us to do and to be, that their hearts may be encouraged and, he says, being knit together in love because it's hard to penetrate a church that loves each other. It really is. And false teachers are always going to look for an in. And if the church is encouraged and if their hearts are knit together by love, it's difficult to penetrate that kind of a situation. So he says that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. And these, again, are some of these buzzwords. I think Paul probably using them on purpose here. Full and understanding and knowledge and mystery. The things that these Gnostic teachers would appeal to to try to lure some of these Christians in Colossae into hearing them out as, in terms of what they had to say. But these are all things that we actually have in Christ Jesus. These are things you don't have to look anywhere for if you know Jesus Christ. You already have these things. In fact, that's his hope that we would have a full assurance of understanding. And when a person, when a Christian has a full assurance of what they have in Christ, as a result of knowing Christ, they're way, way less likely to be lured into some kind of false teaching or some sort of false system. I read somewhere that 80% of converts to Mormonism come out of a Christian background. Now that kind of surprises me, but it sort of doesn't in some ways. But what it tells me then is, is that those individuals were either not taught or never fully understood the fact that they cannot be more rich than they are in Jesus Christ. That if you know Jesus Christ, or in knowing Jesus Christ, nothing can be added to that. Nothing can improve upon that in any way. But it is that lack of understanding that often leads people to be vulnerable to false teaching, not being satisfied with the simplicity that is in Christ. So Paul wants them to see that these things are theirs in Christ Jesus, it says, verse three, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And the word all means all, all the time. All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you put these two things together, right? Back in the last chapter, you have Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? So Christ in you. Now inside Christ is all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, it's all in Christ, and Christ is in you, the hope of glory. How can you top that? How can you do any better than that? How can you go deeper than that? How can you improve upon that? You can't. He's got it all, and he's in you, and he's got you. And that means those Gnostic teachers or anybody that would come along today and try to knock on your doorstep with some literature or a magazine or something along those lines and something that's contrary to God's word. Hey, the next time those people come knocking at your door, don't hide, go talk to them. A conversion might happen. It's not gonna happen on this side of the door. Go talk to them and let them know where the fullness is, where the understanding is, where the depth is. There's nothing that anybody can add to what you know or what you experience if you know Jesus Christ. There is nothing deeper than that. So he says, verse four, now this I say, that it's all about Jesus, right? That he created it all, in him all things consist, he's the redeemer, it's all about Jesus, right? Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Now, this is important, and I mentioned this earlier, a deceiver, okay, and this is why we have to be careful about what we watch on TV that is, quote, spiritual, 
or what we read. Because, and here's why, a deceiver, look at that verse again, will always be persuasive by definition. If not, it wouldn't be very deceiving at all. If they weren't able to persuade, then it wouldn't be very deceptive. It would be easy to see. So it's important that he says, hey, people will try to deceive you with persuasive words. Verse five, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I'm with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now here's a big key. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So in the same way, he says, as you have received or in the same way that you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, in the same way, so walk in him. In other words, in the same way that you got saved, walk. How'd you get saved? You got saved through a simple faith, right? Wasn't it simple? It wasn't ultra complicated at all. You came to God, you're like, okay, God, I'm a sinner. I've heard that you save those. I believe in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the payment for my sins. Lord, would you forgive me? Come into my life. It's that simple, right? That's the gospel message. So he says, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In the same way you received him, walk that way. By a simple faith. In other words, don't complicate it. God has made salvation and sanctification or maturation simple, and he did it for a reason. I think there's something, maybe it's our pride It's just the flesh, I don't know. But there's something I think in our minds sometimes that leads us to think that maybe complicated or more complicated is better than simple, but that's not the way that God does things, not as it relates to salvation and sanctification. God makes things so simple that even a child can understand, which is why we teach the children here God's word. We teach them about Jesus Christ. We don't just have fun with them. We don't just play games with them. We teach them Jesus Christ. There's nothing deeper than Jesus Christ. So we teach our kids the depth of the scriptures and teaching them about Jesus Christ. God is very, very smart, right? If he wanted to fry our brains with complexity, he could easily do that whenever he wanted to, but he chose to make it simple by design. Just imagine, you know, Jesus, of course, when he would teach the multitudes, he would always use something, appeal to nature or something simple that even a child could understand, right? He would say something like, the kingdom of God is like treasure in a field, or it's like the wheat and the tares, or it's like a mustard seed, or it's like a lost coin. He would have used keys if he was around today, but he said a lost coin in a way that anybody could understand. If he had said something like, uh, the kingdom of God is like, pursuant to our discussion last week, particle physics, you'd be like, whoa, that sounds a lot better than my understanding of things. I just have Jesus. And that's what these folks do is they kind of build upon the insecurity of, I wonder if Jesus is enough. And Paul's saying, look, don't let anyone ever trick you into thinking that the complex as it relates to this subject is better than the simple. We're saved by faith, so walk by faith. We were saved by the teaching of the word of God, so walk according to the word of God. Or by the Spirit's movement in our life, so walk in the Spirit. The Christian life continues as it began by simple faith in God. Verse seven, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And that's a big key also not just to be rooted in Jesus Christ. He's the depth. You want depth that's in him, but then to abound in thanksgiving for what Christ has done for you, forgiven you. He's made you a new creation. He's assured you of heaven. One of the reasons I think oftentimes that people are lured by false teaching is because they lack thankfulness. They lack thankfulness in their life. It's not enough that they're going to heaven. It's not enough that their sins are forgiven. So they lack contentment, and as a result, then when one teacher is on television 
talking about how you can get a promotion in your job if you just have enough faith. Now all of a sudden, they're lured into listening to that kind of thing. Someone is twisting the scriptures, talking about how you get a job promotion. The scriptures don't address that. They don't. And so what you're doing is you're listening to that kind of thing because we're not thankful. I think it's really hard today to be a young person. I remember growing up, we just didn't have as many options. Now there's just so many things put in front of a young person today. So many areas, avenues of entertainment and fun, recreation, all these things. It's easy to want and we can be left unthankful because we don't appreciate all that we have in Christ Jesus. There's nothing better than what we have in Christ Jesus. We're just distracted by all these things that sometimes compete for the simplicity that is in him. And so a young person, a teenager, can just be like thrown in so many different directions because they're not thankful for what they have in Jesus Christ. We can empathize. You that are spiritual, you that have been walking with God for some time now that know Christ, you gotta come alongside these young people and we gotta help them to understand. We were lured and tempted in much the same way. We can empathize. I think I'm perpetually 16, trapped in a 41-year-old body. I think that oftentimes. So we can go to the young people and say, hey, we know what it's like. And it's not like we're not tempted by some of those things anymore, right? And it's not like we don't ever give in to some things also, right? Because we're not perfect. Now, we've been delivered by so much, and God has freed us from those things. We've been walking with him for some time now. But I, we know what it's like to be 16. I just have 25 more years of experience being 16 than they do. So there's a sense in which, as we grow and as we're set apart for his purposes and understand, we kind of settle in, we mature a little bit, we become more thankful for what we have, for the simple things, and we're able to encourage those people along those lines. So he wraps up, okay? Verse eight, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. The warning here, hey, they're gonna come along and they're gonna try to cheat you with philosophy, not true philosophy, okay? But theories and ideas of man that conflict with the word of God. They're nothing more than, he says, empty deceit. One translation has that rendered high-sounding nonsense. That's what a lot of it amounts to today. It sounds high, it sounds sophisticated, but it's away from Christ, and so for the purposes of our, our walk with God, it's of really no use to us at all. Something that I ran across recently too called um, psychotheology. It's a new study that sort of emerging in even some Bible colleges today. You can find books online on the subject. I'm not making these things up. Psychotheology, where people are they're trying to merge together, and I'm not against anything, so I don't think this is me hammering on psychology, but as it relates to Theology, how is psychology, explain to me how psychology can supplement theology in any way, shape, or form. There's no way. It's like a marriage between Freud and Jesus Christ. It doesn't work in any way, shape, or form. And it's sad, you can get degrees online, you can get your master's in this kind of thing. And there are implications in all branches of study and science and things like that, that's not my point. I'm just saying as it relates to what the Bible principally speaks on, which is the restoring of the human soul unto God, psychology can't help with that. The Bible is not insufficient as it relates to that. We just need Jesus Christ, the simple truth that is in him. So he says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world. We'll come back to those two things when we wrap up in a second. And not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And there's the bottom line, right? That's the last verse, that we are complete in him. Notice the things that he mentioned, though, there in verse 8. The traditions, the basic principles, traditions, not evil in and of itself at all. Even basic principles of this world, not evil in and of itself. But when they are elevated above God's word, or even when they're elevated to God's word, 
where people begin to observe the basic principles of the world or the traditions of men above God's word or to God's word, that's where it's problematic. Jesus said this, he was speaking to the Pharisees, right? He said, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the traditions of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your traditions. And that's when it becomes a problem. It becomes a problem when you and I can't set foot in a church body and operate according to the scriptures because we must fall in line with their protocol that is not outlined in God's word or even runs contrary to God's word. I'll never forget years ago, a church in town, I won't name it, but, and I don't know if this is still the case now, I was there for a funeral, and I walked into this church for this funeral, and upon the wall, up mounted on the wall, engraved plaque, large engraved plaque, not the Ten Commandments, not the cross, not one of Jesus' quotes, nothing like that, it was their church's code of conduct. I'm not making that up. I sat there and read the whole thing, I couldn't believe it. I'm not saying all of it was unbiblical, I'm just saying, why would that be what you would put up on your wall, the church's code of conduct, as opposed to something Jesus said, or the gospel message, or the Ten Commandments, or something along those lines? And down throughout the years, you have all these traditions, right? I grew up in a church where you weren't allowed to dance. So if a young person went to a dance, I would not have posted it on Instagram like they do today, because that was a no-no. I don't know what would have happened. What's your position on dancing, Pastor? It's not in God's word. So you have the freedom in Christ. Now, some of you, the way you dance, maybe you don't have the freedom in Christ, I don't know. <laughs> Bible doesn't say anything about not wearing makeup. Some of you might have grown up in a church where you weren't supposed to wear makeup. Bible doesn't say anything about that at all. Remember Chuck Smith used to say, even the old barn looks good when you put a fresh coat of paint on it? <laughs> Nothing wrong. Hey, I, I think makeup's a blessing, so don't get on me. Cosmetics comes from the word cosmos, which is the Greek, and that word means out of chaos comes order, so you can't really have a problem with cosmetics. Or Okay, I'm gonna get in trouble now. Some of you grew up eating fish on Friday, right? You know, and all they ever said was you couldn't eat meat. You could still have a salad or whatever. But the tradition began that you would eat fish. Now, I like clam chowder, so I like that to this day. But still to this day, that happened. I know my dad's mom, who I believe is in heaven now, but till the day she died, was eating fish on Friday. My dad grew up having fish stew and fried fish and grilled fish and every kind of thing that you could possibly imagine because of these sort of traditions. I know of one pastor, I was listening to him talk about this subject, he said that his wife always, when she would make a roast, every time she made a roast, speaking of traditions, she would always cut off both ends of the roast. And one time he started going, this is becoming wasteful, why do you cut off both ends of the roast? She said, well that's because my mom always did it that way. So he asked mother-in-law, one time. Why is it that your daughter always cuts off both ends of the roast? Why did you do that? And her answer was, well, that's because my mom did it that way. Well, this pastor was fortunate because grandma was still alive. She was 100 years old. And they were over there one time, and he asked her, he said, why is it that you cut off both ends of the roast? Because your daughter and your granddaughter do that. You know that? And she said, well, that's because I don't have a pan big enough to fit the roast in. <clears throat> And so down throughout the years, that became the tradition, even though it doesn't make any sense at all whatsoever. The Bible says God helps those who help themselves. No, it doesn't. God helps those who can't help themselves. Everything in moderation, no, you don't wanna do everything in moderation. There's some things you should never do. You don't wanna take like LSD in moderation. Even the statement itself, if you apply it to itself, everything in moderation, which means that then you would take that statement in moderation, which would mean sometimes you wouldn't take everything in moderation. The point is, is that all of these platitudes 
and these traditions. And then along with all of that too, what happens even within us? Isn't it amazing? You can be going to church for a while and you can be loving it and you can have friends and all of a sudden you find out that they have a different view of eschatology than you. And even in your heart, you're bummed. You ever experienced that before? And you get to this place, and maybe before we were a little bit more mature, we got to the place where that didn't bother you. But we can argue about our, that or predestination and Calvinism, Arminianism, all these different things. Old earth, young earth, and we get ourselves focused off of what matters most, which is Jesus Christ. And he says there, you are complete in him. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Don't minimize that this morning as we leave here that it's all about Jesus Christ. It doesn't get any better than Jesus Christ. He's in you, there's nothing else that you need, there's nothing we have to search for that isn't already found in him, and he is in us, and that's our hope of glory. Father, thank you for your word to us. <clears throat> Things that you want to teach us, Lord, and there's angles and there's perception, God, and you give us that. It's wonderful, Lord, when we come to church and we hear someone say something a little bit different than we've heard it before, even though it's the same message, and it helps us. But also, Lord, it's entirely refreshing once again to just celebrate the fact that everything we need is found in your Son, the Lord Jesus. There is nothing deeper than that. And God, we thank you that even though we're not perfect, we're nowhere near perfect, that you choose to have your Holy Spirit live inside of us, the temple, the holy of holies, inside of what would otherwise be dirty, rotten, filthy wrecks because of what Jesus did on the cross. We celebrate him today. We declare his victory upon that cross. And Lord, we desire amidst a time probably more than ever that is hit by deceit and empty philosophy, a world we live in where we do need to beware and we have to be on guard because of all the false teaching. Lord, help us, encourage us today to continue and to remain standing for Christ amidst all of these kinds of things. And we ask it in Jesus' name.